We're winding down our series on who's got next and trusting the gospel to the next generation. We've been going very carefully through the epistle of 2 Timothy. You'll recall that the apostle Paul is in jail. He is in a terrible situation. It's not house arrest. He is writing this letter. It's his last will and testament to his young protege, Timothy, encouraging Timothy to buck up to fan into flame the good gifts that were imparted to him as the church commissioned him to do his ministry and encouraging him to pass on the faith and entrust it to reliable people who will in turn teach others. That's the context of the passage that we will be examining today from 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. The theme of this passage, as I've studied it, is this. If we expect to hand off the faith... To the next generation, we must be willing to suffer for the gospel truth. Secondly, we must be grounded in gospel truth. And third, we need to be equipped, more fully equipped, for gospel work. This came home to me on Friday as I was riding with... uh, a bunch of wonderful new friends, some of whom I knew, and new friends that I got to meet down to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life in D.C. It was an amazing experience. Let me just give you a few quick snapshots of of what I saw. Standing up on a pillar, I I learned that we're not supposed to do that in D.C. during a march, but I I found a place where I could kind of climb up and turn around and see this mass of humanity just flowing down the street. It was amazing. I've been in some large stadiums, over 100,000 people, and at the University of Michigan football field, nothing compared to this. And almost all of them were younger than me. That's what was so exciting. It has really become a youth movement. I looked across and I saw many banners and posters and signs from all the various tribes, you know, different churches and denominations and, and things. And I, I saw one that struck me that, that I never expected to see. It was Princeton University for Life. And it just caught my eye that even there, at one of the bastions of establishment liberalism, a remnant remains. And I'm certain that that Professor Robert George, a phenomenal Catholic professor there in political philosophy, was probably among that that crowd. It, 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 It really did catch my eye. Another one that was amazing was seeing the, the, uh, the University of Notre Dame students, all 615 students and, and uh, 200 administrators, the president of the university. A large group of them were gathered. And, of course, Notre Dame kids, you know, just clean-cut, preppy kids. And they were there uh, singing their alma mater in front of the Supreme Court. It was truly remarkable. If you know the Notre Dame alma mater, it's a, it's a prayer. And to see those kids embrace the pro-life movement was very encouraging. I also got to see a sign of, of two, I think they were either Hasidic or Orthodox Jews, who were standing with a, with a large sign and had some Hebrew on it, which I couldn't read. My Hebrew's a little rusty. But they, in English it said the, the Talmud, uh, the Talmud, uh, condemns murder. 
And there were these Jews. So we had Catholics and Jews and, and lots of, of evangelical Christians and, and I'm sure unbelievers as well gathered together on this, this great march. But what, what marked for me the event was a conversation that I had on the way down to the march. It was with a woman named Blanche and she's given me permission to share her story. Blanche shared with me that she had two sons at Wheaton College, and we had that in common. We discussed all the ins and outs, as parents do. And I knew Blanche's story more than she realized because, of course, I had read on the Wheaton website of the tragedy of the loss of her son who drowned at a camp, Honey Rock Camp, um, part of Wheaton College's outdoor ministry training program. And so I knew the, the poignancy and the sadness of that story. She has two other kids at Wheaton, and we chatted about them. And I waited to see if she would share with me about Alex, and uh, she did. And she said, I had a, another son who went to Wheaton. And I said, I know. And she began to share with me uh, the story of Alex and how he drowned at Honey Rock in the lake and the devastating effect that that's had on her over the last three and a half years. She's a pastor's wife, and God seemingly always puts me uh, next to ministry leaders to minister to ministry leaders, and, and there I sat and listened to her story. It was amazing. The thing that I want to highlight from her story was this. Blanche said that through this period of time of suffering that she's gone through, She said God had been speaking to her so clearly in the midst of her suffering through his word. And she did a rather unusual hand motion as she was describing this to me. She said, it's as though every day I read something fresh comes down from heaven from God's word. Every day I tap into God's word and he speaks to me. It is so alive to me. It is so real to me. And he speaks so, so clearly and profoundly to me as his spirit makes it come alive to me. Blanche shared words to that effect. I said, Blanche, may I share that story with the church? She said, yes. I said, because that's exactly where we as a church body and, and certainly me as a pastor, that's where we need to be. We need to be in a place where God's inerrant, infallible, and totally trustworthy word becomes our hope and stay, becomes our, our still place in a turning and a turbulent world. The writer of this passage, the Apostle Paul, is commending to Timothy God's word. He says to him in verse 10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet... Paul says, the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul here is telling Timothy, Timothy, trust God's word and study your teacher 
He's making a contrast here between the false teachers and and the true teacher, the Apostle Paul. He's contrasting this false gangrene that's been going on in the church there in Ephesus. That's spreading like a bad disease that we learned about last week and in previous weeks. This teaching swerved from the truth. But Timothy knew Paul. He knew Paul's suffering. Timothy, being from Lystra, saw Paul stoned and dragged out of Lystra, and and, and he saw him left there for dead. He may have known some of the people who stoned Paul and left him there. He witnessed how Timothy, he witnessed rather how Paul had taken a courageous stand for gospel truth and had suffered as a result. And so Paul could say to his young protege, don't just, don't just get the words, get the way of life that I have lived. Follow the way that I have lived. William Barclay, the Scottish New Testament scholar, says to follow in this sense means to follow a person physically, to stick with them through thick and thin, and to be by his side in fair weather and in foul. It means to follow a person mentally, to attend diligently to his teaching, and to fully understand the meaning and the significance of what he says. It means to follow a person spiritually, not only, uh, not only to understand what he says, but also to carry out his ideas and to be the kind of person that he wishes us to be. That's what Paul is teaching Timothy. Follow me, Timothy, as I follow Christ, as he says in another, in another text. We follow Timothy, who's following Paul, who is following Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, friend. This text is is not just for Timothy. It's for all Christians. It's certainly for, for Christian leaders. And Paul mentions nine things in this text that Timothy observed up close in the life and ministry of Paul. First, his teaching. That means his doctrine. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, that the things which Timothy had heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, he was to entrust to faithful men who would be able to teach others, to pass on this faith that it might thrive and grow. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul warns that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Our time, if there was ever a time that that statement is true, that time is now. He says they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul reminds Timothy to observe and to keep close in his heart those things that he saw in the life of Paul, first and foremost, his teaching, his doctrine. Secondly, his way of life or conduct, as another translation says. His lifestyle, his daily living patterns and habits of behavior. You know, much damage occurs in the church when our words and our ways don't match up you got to walk the talk, as we say. And when one's way of life doesn't match up with one's teaching, we have a problem. Thirdly, Paul says, my purpose or my aim in life, recall that, remember it, 
Hold on to it. You've observed it closely. Now imitate me. Now what was Paul's aim in life? Paul's aim was to, decla- was to proclaim the gospel. In fact, he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He had a clear call, an inner drive that motivated him in an external direction. Fourth, he mentions faith. He means in this context, faithful living. Fifth, he mentions patience. John MacArthur comments that this word, patience, carries the idea of steadfastness and long-suffering. Paul is speaking of the resolute and persistent spirit of the servant of Christ who never gives up and never gives in regardless of the cost. MacArthur goes on to say, Such patience is more than an attitude. It is a determined way of life. And it is a certain mark of the Christian who lives in uncompromising devotion to his Lord and to the work of his kingdom. Six, he mentions love. Love is what it's all about. Love God. Love our neighbors. The apostle John says that we are to love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Seventh, he mentions endurance, steadfastness in turbulent times of moral chaos. Times that we live in today require endurance and steadfastness. Eighth, he mentions persecutions and nine, sufferings. No surprise here. Jesus said it would be so. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. One commentator said that self-centered Christians who serve the Lord half-heartedly, and I must confess that that often describes me, seldom have to pay a price for their faith. They are of little threat to Satan's work because they are of little benefit to Christ. Lord have mercy. But, but Paul says, For all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Jesus said so. And when you suffer, for the faith in particular, but when you suffer perhaps as this woman suffered, Blanche, who lost her her, her son in his early 20s, when you suffer, we have the sure promise of Scripture that the Lord will stand with us. 2 Timothy 4, verse 17 and 18. Paul Paul is, is rounding out his letter. He's describing his great pain, his suffering in the cause of gospel truth. And he says, the Lord stood by me. The Lord strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued, Paul says, from the lion's mouth... The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed 
and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever, says Paul, awaiting his death. Amen. Suffering for the gospel is part of the Christian life. I believe that in this next generation, one of our tasks together as a church family is to strengthen the rising generation for the possibility of increasing suffering and persecution. I don't say that often because it's a little scary, but I feel it in my bones and I read it in Holy Scripture. We must prepare the rising generation with the reality that we will suffer for gospel truth. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. Secondly, we'll move more quickly through these two points. Secondly, we must be grounded in gospel truth, abiding in King Jesus. Look with me at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. That is, that, that which you firmly believed. Because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, the sacred writings of God, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Recall that Timothy knew those who taught him the Bible. Back in chapter 1, we learned that that Paul was reminding Timothy of those who taught him the Holy Scriptures. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It had no hypocrisy. It was authentic. It was genuine. A faith, he says, that also dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy learned God's word from his grandmother and his mother. They say that a a Jewish boy and girl of that time would sooner forget his or her name before they would forget the word of God. How much more in these times do we need to build God's word into families and into children? After all, thousands, literally thousands, have been converted just by reading the Scriptures, having them sewn down into us, as it says in in Isaiah 55, when God's Word is sent out, it always accomplishes the purposes for which God sent it. Sometimes it waters the soul immediately. Other times, this glorious living water of God's Word uh, is like snow that sits on top of the head, and it may take several years, even several decades, for it to melt and trickle down and nourish the soul. But God's Word never returns to Him void. It always accomplishes the work for which He sends it forth. How much more should we entrust it to our children A godly heritage is a wonderful gift to give to kids. We can give them instruction in the Scripture through a variety of means. When we dedicate and baptize children, we always give two wonderful, wonderful storybooks that that describe the, the theme of redemption, Bible stories for kids. They're phenomenal. We have them in the bookstore. Pick them up for someone you know in our church family that has had a baby recently or perhaps your own children or grandchildren could benefit from them. But we must make a deposit in our kids 
We all together collectively as a church must open a spiritual investment count and sacrifice greatly of our time, talent, and resources to to open up an IRA in our kids to put this great treasure in them. But you can't invest in others what you don't have in yourself. So we must be willing to suffer for gospel truth. We must be grounded in gospel truth in order to hand it off to others. And third and finally, we must be equipped for gospel work. Every Christian, equipped for ministry. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is God's Word breathed out. It has divine origin. That's why it converts That's why it brings change. God's mighty hammer shattered my cold, stony heart. And it can shatter the the resistance of of anyone who, who is resisting God. God's word is powerful to bring change. It's totally, utterly trustworthy. And it has authority. Paul focuses here not on the writers so much as the very words themselves. The word he used here is, is writings or, or graphe. He's not focusing on the human authors who, you know, the Ephesians 2.20, the, the church is, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But here he is focusing on the words themselves. He says these words are authoritative words. That's why the Reformers said that the Word of God is our standard, our guide for our faith, our life, and our practice. And we need to reinvigorate that in our day. There's a sense that we must be inspired to understand God's Word, but here Paul is focusing on the words themselves. He says they're useful for several things. For teaching, it shows us the new way of following Timothy as Timothy follows Paul as Paul follows Christ. The scriptures rebuke us. And God's word penetrates to the core of our hearts. It discerns our motives, our thoughts, the very inclinations of our heart. It brings to light those things which are not in conformity to Christ. That's a good thing. It's a merciful thing. When that that laser of God's word gets right down into my heart and exposes the the, the sin and and those teeny polyps and, and moral cancers that are growing within me and cuts them away. That's a merciful thing. God's word does that. He says it corrects. Literally, it, this means to bring something into straightness, into proper alignment and wholeness. It provides power for straightening out our lives so that increasingly they are in conformity with Christ. And he says it's good for training in righteousness. Many of you will know this, is the, 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 this word training is the, the Greek word for, for education. It's a, it's a discipline and instruction, a nurture and a way of living. And so to mature a child from infancy to maturity so that that child might participate fully in the church and in society, we have to train them in God's word. 
so that they may be trained in righteousness. Righteousness, of course, is being rightly related to God and rightly related to our neighbors. Walking out this way of life that's been entrusted to us. Scripture trains us to grow into the image of of Christ's righteousness so that together the body of Christ may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has prepared good works for us to do. That's what it says in Ephesians. We're saved by grace through faith, but we are saved by grace through faith in order that we might walk out this faith in the world. Bethany Adoption Services is but one way that we make a a, a difference in, in this world, walking out our faith. And God's Word empowers us, makes us capable and proficient, complete, so that our inner being and our outward behavior lines up increasingly. Our attitudes must be shaped by the Word, and our motives then will become increasingly His motives. Now, very quickly, we have a reading guide out at the welcome table. Many of you, I was so encouraged to hear that many have signed up to do the Through the Bible plan. I didn't anticipate such a good response, so I was greatly encouraged. I thought we'd leak it out in year one, and then next year have some testimonies of people who have done it and had experienced change in their life, and and then really go for it next year. But so many jumped on, I was greatly encouraged. And it's still not too late. There are two ways you can do it. You can read through the whole Bible in a year following that plan, or you can read through the New Testament in a year, or the Old Testament in a year. The point is, is, is to be in God's Word and have it be invested in you. And I have on that guide out uh, at the table uh, four tips on, on, on how you read the Bible. The first one, and it follows an acronym, REAP, R-E-A-P, REAP. First, read slowly. Read for formation, not information. Read to know God. Chew on God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Secondly, the E, examine carefully. Read slowly, examine carefully, meditate on it day and night, mutter it, soak in it, stew on it, ponder it, pursue it, talk about it, chew on it a little bit till it gives some insight. And then make your life's decisions based on it. As the Book of Common Prayer says, read, mark, and learn God's Word. Read it with a readiness to surrender and a sincere desire to obey what you find there and be willing then to work hard. Read slowly. Examine carefully. Third, apply thoughtfully. Calvin said our senses are so feeble that we could never understand a single word God says to us unless we are illuminated by his Holy Spirit. For carnal men cannot, Calvin says, comprehend heavenly things. We have to apply it thoughtfully. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And fourth and finally, pray continually. Scripture is God's tool for prayer, so we must saturate both our reading of Scripture and our study with prayer. If we do this together as a church family, if we grow in this more and more, we will be able to entrust 
to the rising generation a vibrant, robust faith. Let us pray that God's will would be done. Father in heaven, we know it is your will for us to follow and obey your word. Will you make us, Father, genuinely and sincerely, in reality, the people of the book? Help us, Lord, to base our decisions upon it. Help us, Father, to drink deeply of your word so that we might encounter the Lord Jesus Christ there and feed upon him by faith. And now, Lord, as we rise to sing this this great classic hymn, I pray, God, that it would reflect our desire to read, mark, and learn your word. Amen.